Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Sean Willard engineers menus and wine lists for a living. It's a fascinating job that involves economics, science, art, psychology and plenty of number crunching. Our enjoyable chat covered everything from font sizes to daily specials, how the pandemic changed the on-trade forever, techniques for steering customers away from default choices, the concept of truth on menus, and what annoys him most about restaurants. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. That you've got as a menu engineer, which we'll talk about in a minute. Just begin by telling us, where are you at the moment? I think you're in the States, aren't you? Yes, I am in Los Angeles, California. I'm here just before the Thanksgiving holiday visiting my sister who lives in L.A. Oh, that's very good of you to give up the time just before Thanksgiving when you could be on holiday. You could be eating, what, turkey? Uh, yes, turkey is the main staple, but we do a little mix of everything. Tomorrow, actually, it's just my sister and I. We're keeping it low-key, and we're doing uh, turkey, but not the traditional style. We're going to do turkey burgers, turkey sliders, things like that. Like uh, maybe that. turkey on a pizza. So I can see your influence already on what you're eating, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just tell us a bit about where you were brought up. And I, I have this vision of you of this being this sort of foodie as a kid where you're experimenting with food like you're going to do tomorrow on Thanksgiving. Tell us a bit more about your upbringing. Absolutely. Um, I was raised in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, um, and uh, eventually moved to New Jersey when I was in grade five or year five in school uh, th- through the end of primary school. And I come from a big blended family. I have uh, seven siblings total. And uh, my mother was always sure that uh, for dinner, that was her most important time of the day, that we all came together and had dinner together as a family. And she's a tremendous cook. uh, And she exposed us with her cooking to so many different cultures from Asian food, Italian food, uh, you know, just the standard American fare, of course, uh, but lots of different types of food. And she was always exploring. She was someone who enjoyed reading cookbooks for pleasure and then going and trying out those. Um, and with the big family, you know, we had different duties uh, around the dinner kind of service, if you will, whether it was prep or clean up. And she always involved all the kids. And, and with seven siblings or six siblings, rather, I mean, presumably didn't eat out that much because it would have cost a lot of money, wouldn't it? <laughs> Quite a bit. And, you know, they were always value conscious with such a big family. And, uh, but, you know, we enjoyed going out. And it was sort of a special moment when we would. I would say so. Family meals and along with that, a lot of celebrations. So, you know, lots of birthdays, uh, birthdays for, you know, our family and then friends of the family would even be hosted at our house or uh, different events. And we'd be hosting people a lot of the time. So entertaining large groups. Uh, and it was sort of the expectation that we all jumped in to help out. So it was sort of a natural part of my upbringing. Yes, a good, good group when we all get together. A famous school of hotel administration. I wonder, was that entirely focused on, on the business side of things? 
It was their primary focus. And the hotel school at Cornell, they would, in the time that I was there, kind of their mantra was, we teach you the business of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other hospitality schools may be more involved with uh, the culinary aspect, the service delivery aspect. Now, that was a part of our core curriculum. You know, we had um, uh, time spent in the training kitchens uh, for a restaurant class where it was a student run restaurant that ran uh, Monday through Thursday during the week. Uh, it's sort of in the basement of the hotel that was attached to the school. Uh, there was also a wines course um, that was. Uh, it was introduction to wines and it was in the auditorium. They would get 800 students from around the university, mostly hotel school students, uh, as you know, would participate and they would do tastings. So we'd all come with our uh, black hard case with three tasting glasses. And then you'd kind of pass the bottle down uh, the aisles and pour the tasters out. Uh, and it was it, it was a class that got a little bit louder and more rambunctious towards the end of, of the class. Uh, but, but that was a prerequisite to the higher level hotel school courses that were a uh, food and wine pairings, which was a much smaller setting and more intimate. What was valuable you learned from the course in, in particular? Is anything that st- stood you in good stead? I was really fortunate to be part of what's called the Hotel Leadership Development Program. So as I mentioned, there was a hotel that was attached to our school and it was sort of a learning hands-on laboratory. But being part of this leadership development program, it was really focused on uh, cross-training and rotational programs. So you'd spend six months in the front desk uh, working as a valet, parking cars, checking people in at the front desk. Uh, down to housekeeping, where you're working with the housekeepers, cleaning rooms, uh, stocking supply closets, um, into the kitchen. So uh, I probably spent about uh, just over a year in the kitchen because that was of interest to me. Um, And that could be for weekend brunches in the restaurant, for catered events, um, all sorts of things. And did you go on to work in restaurants once you'd left hotel school or or hotels? So it, it's an interesting question for me. I sort of took a circuitous route through my academic process. I, they labeled me as a non-traditional student. Uh, but what that meant was <clears throat> before Cornell, I worked in restaurants for six years. Um, and that was while completing my associate's degree at community college. So I took a little bit longer than most. It was a two-year degree program if you were a full-time student. I was always part-time because I was working simultaneously. So it took me about five and a half years to complete my two-year degree. Uh, But looking back on it, I I really wouldn't have done it another way uh, because it gave me the opportunity to be so hands-on and learn in restaurants uh, all along the way. And what sort of places were you working in? So I started um, first, my first job was at a golf course. So um, there we hosted every Monday and Tuesday were events and tournaments. Um, and I also worked in the pro shop, uh, working with guests directly. And then into restaurants, I started at an independent steakhouse in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, named Casey Prime Steakhouse. Uh, really fantastic uh, pair of owners there. And I started as a host uh, because they were sort of a prestigious steakhouse in our area. So I had to start from the ground up. But starting as a host, uh, that's where I learned to really love and care for menus. It was my job to see people and present them with the menu. Uh, But then at the end of the day, sort of cleaning down the menus, wiping them down, making sure that they were ready for the next shift. Mm. So I spent a lot of time reading the menus. And uh, uh, one time I I noticed a couple of spelling errors and also a a redundancy on the menu. (laughs) And (laughs) I went to the owners and I said, you know, uh, Andy, uh, we have a misspelling here and a a misspelling here. And this one's listed twice. 
And he looks up at me and says, uh, Sean, uh, we're not English majors. We're restaurateurs. <laughs> and I just loved that. Uh, because it was such a successful steakhouse that a minor misspelling yeah. they could dismiss. Attention to detail, right? Yeah. Yes. And and they knew that I kind of looked at things with a little bit more uh, care and a little bit differently than most. Yeah. Um, so eventually uh, they had an opening in their accounts payable department working in their office. And they asked me if I wanted to do that. I'd never done it before. Uh, so I leapt at the opportunity. And uh, then they asked uh, me to help them update the menu. Uh, they said, we need to make a, a price. We have to adjust our prices. Okay, so um, let's take a look at the cost. They didn't have their costs. So that was the first time that I was in charge of doing a costing audit yeah. of all the menu items. Just before we get on to what a menu engineer does exactly, because it's, 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 it's multifaceted, just tell us a little bit about Greg Rapp, who was a pioneer in the field of menu engineering. And I know he's something of a mentor to you, and he died a couple of years ago, very sadly, didn't, didn't he? Tell us a bit more about him and what he taught you. Craig had a profound influence on my life. I would not be here today having this conversation with you if it wasn't for Greg. Uh, so I owe so much of what I get to do today to him and our time together. Uh, he just changed my world view on menus, life as well. But, uh, you know, when I graduated from hotel school, I had my Cornell degree. I had, uh, at that point, I've worked in hospitality for eight years. I was sure I knew everything I needed to know about menus. And then I met Greg and he really opened up my way of thinking. Uh, when I look back on menus that I'd created for the steakhouse, for the independent restaurant that I got to go on to with the chef from there, uh, it was <laughs> a little bit difficult to go back and look at your own work with a new lens. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but Greg, he had a special way of warming the hearts of people, everyone that he met. And he had sort of a joie de vivre, a, a good way of living and approaching his life. Um, he, when I met him, he'd been engineering menus for 33 years. So he was constantly on the road and traveling and he just knew how to do it right. If he had a layover in a city that had a good amusement park, he would go stop by and jump on a couple <laughs> rides or uh, the local sports team, you know, we'd go watch hockey games. Now, neither he nor I were big hockey fans, but it was what that city was known was for. So we'd stop by. Yeah, I mean, I, I only never got to meet him, sadly, but watching him on YouTube, you know, he looks like a guy with a nice personality and you could see why people would, would employ him, frankly. I mean, he looks great. A absolutely. And and just yeah. a great uh, party guest as well. You know, he'd come have holidays with our family. So for Thanksgiving, he joined us uh, one year and brought popover bread. And uh, he found some rosemary when he was walking into the house and he went out and got rosemary from the garden to put on the popovers. So they there had just go. a little special yeah. touch. Well, I mean, the, the, on the podcast, we're, we're sort of mentally, you know, tasting his memory, really. Um, tell us about menu engineering, because I'm, I'm fascinated just reading up about it, you know, to, for, to prepare for the podcast. Just tell how much is science, how much is art, you know, how much is data, how much is economics, how much is psychology? Is it a bit of all of those things? Just tell us how you would describe it. Absolutely. It's a blend of, you know, many different arts and sciences kind of come together all in one. We also look outward to different industries for inspiration, sometimes guidance. Uh, sometimes we'll look at magazines or, or newspapers. I know that they're not as prevalent now as they once were. Sadly uh, not. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, but something, you know, that we glean from uh, newspapers is the use of columns, right? They're in the business of getting you to read by organizing things into columns. It makes it a little bit less uh, of a task, whereas if they weren't in columns and the, the lines stretched out across the page, it would feel like a daunting task to read. But uh, the, the science and art part of it, there's different 
aspects. So one thing that we always discuss with teams is uh, costing your menu. So your cost of ingredients, your recipe cost is absolutely a science because we have formulas, weights, and measures to come to a final number. Pricing is an art because if we use formulas alone, we can sometimes get drastically different price points where a dish should be, say, a restaurant's trying to achieve a 25% food cost across the board. Uh, so it's an art in that we have to look outward at what are other people doing in our competitive set? Uh, how much do we think we can price a dish at where it's comfortable and also uh, uh, openly and readily available for our target market? Uh, the, the data component of it, when we work with teams, we need their recipe costs and their historical sales. And that allows us to sort of chart their items into what's called the growth share matrix. And that is a way of categorizing items uh, into four categories uh, based on profitability and popularity. And we treat items a little bit differently within those categories. And then the psychology part of it uh, is really how guests are going to interact with a menu. You know, are we overwhelming them with too many choices? Um, when we get to sizes of things, you know, we know uh, from our time in the field and research, if we offer an item in two sizes, people tend to opt for the smaller size. If we offer it in three sizes, people will tend to split pretty evenly between the smaller and the medium, and some people will skew towards that large size. So there's little uh, that's the things psychology. we pick up along the way. Yes, that's really that's really interesting, isn't it? Just you've touched on this a bit, I suppose. But what makes a good menu and, and a bad one? And I just wonder, are those lessons in a, in a way kind of applicable to wine list too? I mean, is is, is shorter better where both are concerned? I truly believe that brevity is the soul of wit. Uh, mm. You know, we can apply that to menus for sure. Uh, and what makes a good menu is in our view, scannability, uh, how quickly can somebody scan the menu and find something that they love? And our goal is to connect people to items that they love and to do so quickly. Uh, we know that attention spans have really lessened over time. When I first started- Thank you, social media, right? <laughs> yes. Short form video is, uh, you know, it's the result for all of us here. Yeah. But um, when I first started with Greg, we said you had about 60 to 90 seconds of a guest's actual attention when they sit down and open a menu at a full service restaurant. And we can nearly cut that number in half in most cases, if not even less so. Um, so we want to be very uh, concise with each and every letter and word we put on a page. Uh, what makes a bad menu is when we overwhelm people uh, by choices and they, what, when we overwhelm people, they'll tend to default to an item that they know. Uh, mm -hmm. Or if we hand them a large stack of menus, so here's the, uh, regular menu, here's the specialist menu, here's the beverage list. Mm -hmm. And, oh, here's our happy hour menu on top of that. And you get a stack of four or five menus. Some people will just push that away and say, I don't want to work. Give I me a pizza. That burger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have a pizza. I'll have a burger. And I saw you have a tap over there. I'll have a draft beer and call it a day. They won't even look at the menu. And you failed at that point, didn't uh, you? In a way? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And because the reason for that failure is because that default order commoditizes their decision to, mm -hmm. oh, for example, my default order at a restaurant could be a Reuben sandwich. Mm -hmm. If I order a Reuben sandwich at your restaurant, you're not going to stand out because the best Reuben sandwich is, of course, at Katz's Deli in New York mm -hmm. City. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've commoditized that choice to all the other hundreds of Reuben sandwiches I've tried all over the place. So it's not <laughs> a standout experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and this applies to wine lists as well. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we'll have our wine by the glass list, which is 
great. It's a much shorter list than oftentimes the bottle list that may come in a book format. Uh, but that can be overwhelming when you're flipping and turning uh, six or eight pages of different wines and you're having trouble recalling, what did I read first on page mm. two? How does it compare mm. to page seven or eight? Mm. I suppose the only time that wouldn't apply is if you're in a, a really top restaurant and you want the place to have you know, verticals of Chateau Lafitte and Latour and Romani Conti and things like that. That's slightly different, isn't it? Yes. There, for all of these things we're discussing, there are uh, sort of exceptions. It's sort of an it depends on what part of the segment of the industry that we're talking about. Uh, of course, in these uh, higher end restaurants, they're going to have more extensive wine lists, mm. but there's also opportunity to uh, make them a little bit more approachable for somebody who may not be as familiar with wine. If I'm, uh, let's say, uh, a young college grad and I'm hosting a potential client out for a dinner and I may be unfamiliar with wines because I didn't have the wines course that we had at Cornell, uh, you know, how can we make that daunting wine list feel as though there's something for them uh, that they're able to point to yeah. and love? Yeah. It reminds me of a great story a sommelier friend of mine in the States told me. He said that he was serving somebody on prom night and this guy was there and his sort of what was up as his father's jacket or something with his date. Uh, and he said to this guy and summoned him over and he said, excuse me, are you the samurai? And the guy said, <laughs> some, some people call me that, sir, but I'm also the wine waiter, which I thought was really lovely because he could have said, no, you arsehole, you know, I'm the sommelier, I'm not the yeah. samurai. But it, it shows you that people get flustered around, around wine, you know, the, the business of ordering wine, even more than food, because we all eat all the time, but we don't necessarily buy expensive bottles of wine every time, right? Absolutely. And and the more uh, approachable we can be to a wider audience, the better, especially through the menu. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. But tell us a bit more about this, because you're obviously you're working for a restaurant, which means that you, you want your client to make a profit. But you're also in a kind of way working unpaid on behalf of the customer, aren't you? I mean, how do you how do you make those two things work alongside each other? Absolutely. And it, our work is really based around the client, uh, the customer at the end of the day, not necessarily the client restaurant that we're working with. We want re customers to have a great experience. And that starts with the menu, uh, well, the welcoming at the door, then the next part uh, when we're sitting at the <laughs> table and taking a look at the menu. Uh, and how can we, again, guide guests, we call them what are bring them back items. Items that the restaurant is confident in that we know people are going to love them. We want the menu to guide people to that item quickly and effectively. What we try to do is not necessarily have that driven by price as much, mm. but more by the ingredients, uh, the transformation processes in the kitchen, whether mm. we're broiling, flambe or saute, you know, we'll sprinkle those processes into the descriptions at times. Mm. And tell us how you personally read a menu or, or wine list, because, you know, you're a professional, you're doing this the whole time, you're advising people on it. Um, and just tell us what, what our approach should be to find things that give us the most pleasure. And I suppose it's equally subjective in a way, offers, offers the best value for money. Where, where, do, where are the nooks and crannies on a wine list? Give us a tip. Yeah. Um, so for me, if I know that I'm dining with others, I will oftentimes read the menu before I go, if it's available online. Yeah. Uh, and that is so I don't get lost in the conversation by going through and absorbing and taking in their, their menu for the first time. Yeah. Uh, but what I try to do is uh, listen to a menu to understand what the restaurant wants me to have. And that's sort of an abstract concept, but I really try to look for where are they putting emphasis around their descriptions? Uh, boxes we know are a powerful tool. Mm -hmm. What are they setting off in a box? 
some restaurants will have a little icon or a signature spotlight icon of, you know, these are our house favorite dishes or the chef selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can help guide new guests. Uh, but really, and I'll ask as well to the staff, if the, the menu doesn't do a good job of it, is what are your most popular dishes here at the restaurant? Uh, okay. And then sort of navigate and base it from there. Yeah. Uh, one trick that I learned from Greg, and this, uh, I hate to use the word trick, but one, uh, something that we do with menus is after we're finished ordering, we keep one menu with us at the table. And that's intentional because sometimes you forget what was on the menu and then your food comes out, you know, 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later. Um, and now you can pull that menu that you saved at the table out and say, oh, that's what that is with that dish or that's the sauce <laughs> that's with that. And it's sort of demystifying the plate that's in front of you. I like that idea. What, what do you think of specials? I'm, I'm, I'm so-called specials. I'm always slightly suspicious that they're things the restaurant's trying to get rid of. I mean, there's that old Loudon Wainwright the third song called Tip That Waitress, where he talks about her knowing all the specials and they are not a lot. Oh, they're not very special. Uh, is, is that true? Am I, am I being too cynical here? Well, I, in most cases, I, I would say yes. And, and specials are a great thing for restaurants for one reason. Uh, there's significant research out there that shows if a, a guest comes to your restaurant and orders the same thing every day that they come in or every time they come in, somewhere around eight to nine times that they come into your restaurant and order the same thing, their consumption will drop off significantly or the time that they will return will drop off. So our job as menu engineers, as a restaurateurs and operators is to get people to change up that item at least once within those eight or nine times. So specials, limited time offers are how we do that. Okay. Uh, now, specials can be used in the other way too. Uh, let's take um, at our restaurant in New Jersey that, that I had done with uh, Chef Fernando, we would run a prime rib special on Friday and Saturday night. So it, we prepared it for that night. We had a limited quantity of that item. Our goal every night was to sell out. Uh, mm-hmm. If we didn't sell out of the prime rib at the end of Saturday night, of course, we'd put it in the cooler. And um, the Sunday special would then be a thinly sliced prime rib sandwich. And yes, in that case, we are it's absolutely trying to go through the prime rib and, and make sure that we sell out of it. But it's a way of recomposing the dish yeah. to also add some intrigue to the menu. Okay. You know, it's something we don't normally have. Yeah, and I think that's acceptable. Tell us how you encourage people to trade up as a menu engineer I mean, in terms of menus and, and wine lists without making them feel pressurized to spend more. How do you do that? A lot of that comes from sharing the why behind an item. Why did we select this wine over that wine? There's a near, you know, infinite amount of wines that we could select, let's say on a wine by the glass list. Why did we select that one? If we can share that with people because of uh, maybe the restaurateur visited that wine region and went to this specific winery, they were, you know, it had a personal connection to them. We might share a quick tidbit of that story there and what makes that wine special. Um, and that can make it a lot more comfortable for people to share up, uh, to, to trade up, if you will. Um, we may use our menu engineering tools, you know, uh, primacy and recency is one, what people read first and what they read last, they tend to order more often. Um, so we may place them differently within a given list on wine lists. And, and that, that affects how, that affects how people, where people, buy, what people buy, does it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. In a given set, you know, let's say we have a category with seven items in it. Uh, the first and second items will probably be more of your top sellers as well as maybe the last on the list. Uh, and sometimes what gets lost in translation in between. 
Uh, with wine lists, what we often try to do, though, is um, arrange them by flavor profile. So mm-hmm. we'll start from light wines towards the top, towards your down to your full-bodied wines. So at the top of a red wine list, maybe Pinot Noirs, and towards the bottom, we have our Shiraz and uh, mm-hmm. Cabernet Sauvignon. And I heard you once talk about anchor items. In other words, these are items that are the most expensive dishes that you have or, or the most expensive wine on the list, presumably. How important are those? Because presumably they're things that people don't order very often. Yes. Uh, and they can serve as a price anchors. You know, we may have a, a really uh, uh, the shot of Louis the Thirteenth, right, uh, that you have uh, that is a hundred dollars a shot for a for a single serving. Um, you know, all of a sudden now stepping down from that, the adjacent item might be a thirty nine dollar uh, cocktail or beverage. Uh, that price now seems a lot more approachable. That we have mm. that Louis the Thirteenth that is acting sort of as a an anchor or a price decoy. You know, not a lot of people are going to order that unless they're out celebrating for an occasion or something. Uh, but it makes the, that step down feel a little bit more comfortable, a little yeah. bit more approachable. It's interesting you're talking about stories and how they help to sell both food and especially wine, I think. You need good staff for that, don't you? I mean, what do you look for in restaurant staff? Presumably they're very important to your menu engineering as well. It's not just the paper, it's the people selling the food in a sense and serving it. Absolutely. Uh, There is what we want teams to have is sort of the menu book behind the menu. So we have our menu, which I would say is an abbreviated list of the name, the ingredients, uh, you know, within the description. Uh, What we should have for our staff always is is sort of a binder that takes each item and maybe each ingredient and really tells the backstory of that ingredient. Where where did the recipe come from? Where did the the beef come from? Uh, You know, what farm is it coming from? Who are the names of the farmers? Uh, Getting into the real nitty gritty detail by arming the staff with that information, they're now going to feel more confident when they go to the table. Are they going to recall everything? No, but some things will stick out to them within that. Um, and uh, there's a, a great restaurant, um, St. Elmo Steakhouse, and they have uh, their shrimp cocktail. Uh, it's sort of their mainstay appetizer. You have to go for the shrimp cocktail. It's, I think, five uh, U10 shrimps, so the larger shrimp. <laughs> and uh, th- and their training materials, they tell that story about the shrimp cocktail, how it came to be as their most prominent appetizer. They have a whole section about the cocktail sauce, how it's made, you know, what are the ingredients, what's the process. Again, do the staff regurgitate that word for word at the table? No, but they have that confidence in the menu that they're able to share uh, with uh, the guests. Interesting. Tell us a bit about how the pandemic changed restaurant menus and wine lists. I mean, was it just QR codes? Uh, I just wonder what you think of thing, you know, looking at looking at lists on mobile phones, on iPads, as against the physical paper menu that we grew up with. Yeah, uh, QR codes. The pendulum surely swung towards digital QR code uh, access menus. Uh, sometimes it, here in the states, that was uh, regulated by the health department, who said, "No, you can't have paper menus and handing those out. You have to go through a digital menu." Other people did it just more for convenience. Um, but what it really taught us, in a way, it, it, it kind of exposed things in our supply chain where we had some really rapid price fluctuations. So. Mm-hmm we needed to be very nimble and, and uh, able to be flexible with our menu updates and changes almost on a daily basis. For some people, a weekly basis, they might be updating the menu. Whereas traditionally, you know, we might be updating our menu maybe two to four times within a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the pandemic, you know, the, the price of brisket could jump up 
30, 30% or more in, from week over week. Uh, so we needed to be flexible. Uh, and we also saw a lot of restaurants that were shrinking their menu total uh, item offerings. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say about 95% of our clients were trimming the fat from their menus. They might have 80 items on the menu total and drop down to 60. The place that had 60 items might be dropping down to 50 or 45. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about default choices. I mean, you've mentioned this in a way that somebody might come in and order the same thing nine times. Uh, how, how do we get people to be a bit more ad- ad- adventurous? I mean, you know, to try the offal or the et the Lirello Mascalese as opposed to just going with a, you know, a Sancerre or a Cabernet or, or a Chablis. How, how do we encourage them? Is it stories that move people towards these newer things? It's stories. Uh, I also believe building the value in descriptions, uh, connecting them to certain items on the menu. It doesn't necessarily be need to be uh, specific to a menu item. And we actually try to steer clear of that. Sometimes you'll see on a menu uh, where there's, they'll say the food item and pair as well with this exact yeah. wine. If we were looking at it from a wineless perspective, I would prefer not to be specific to an exact item just because Mm -hmm. tastes can be different from person to person. Uh, We might say this uh, slightly sweet wine pairs well with a bold and spicier dish. And then it's up to that guest to kind of say, oh, what is that bold and spicy dish that I'm going to enjoy? And then this wine can connect to that. And then they might ask questions in a way. They might ask the sommelier or the waiter, you know, hey, okay, well, what are my choices within those parameters, right? Absolutely. It it opens up the conversation. It allows for a little bit of imagination when we're not so one-to-one, you know, this food item, this dish. I like that. Uh, Another way we do this is with... um, Tasting. Flights are really great. I love when a, 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 a restaurant or a wine bar have flights where people are kind of taken on the journey that was created for them by the sommelier, by mm. uh, the restaurateur. Uh, it, and, and when we do those flights, we want to make sure that we're also providing backstory. You know, sometimes you'll see like a, a paper, I'll call it a placemat, you know, mm. that goes uh, each wine glass is placed on that mat or yeah. a sheet. And it tells, you know, what's the region that it was from? What's that region known for? Uh, what about the, some just key facts that make mm-hmm. it a little bit more inspiring and intriguing. And then we might sprinkle in pair as well with that spicy okay. dish or a yeah. nice fatty, fatty salmon. And, and that's where you can work in something a bit off the wall, can't you, basically, as a wine into, into a flight. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that that's a really great way to introduce it to people. Um, We also encourage restaurants to, you know, if you have a really strong wine program is to do tastings both internally for your staff. So of course they familiarize themselves with it, uh, but also externally to your guests, you know, Mm -hmm. offer them to come to our uh, every other month. We host a wine tasting uh, where we pair food and wine and we talk about it. We might bring in uh, a winemaker or oftentimes wine Vendors and suppliers will be eager to come in for those types of things, but mm-hmm. there's ways to have partnerships within the industry yeah. uh, and also introduce it to our guests. Listen, I mean, you eat out a lot in restaurants and you're also advising restaurants. I want to ask you about your pet hate. I mean, one of mine are those silly cloche things that they sort of remove. <laughs> the other one is people filling my glass up all the time. I like to kind of, you know, right to the top too much. What are the things that really piss you off when you're in a restaurant and you think, don't do that? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. I, I can say what kind of comes out to the top of my list there is when a restaurant is understaffed. Yeah. I am now sitting through my entire meal watching everyone stressed, 
things not being taken yeah. care of in the dining room, uh, tables that need to be bussed or orders mm-hmm. that need to be taken. And I am fighting the urge then to not jump out of my chair and help bust the table. Is that going to help? Never, <laughs> yeah. Of course, I would never do so out of respect for the restaurant, but I... That is, it, it takes away from my ex- dining experience. When it stresses you out, that. does it? Because you can see it being badly run, right? Yes. And, and, you know, I'm here to help as many people as I can. And uh, I know that I can help in pretty much any restaurant I step into. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, it, it, that okay. is uh, the, the tradesman's curse, if you will. Okay. Well, if I ever have dinner with you, I'll make sure we go somewhere where there's plenty of stuff on the Thanks. Listen, appreciate it. Tell me a little bit about markups. I mean, they tend to be uh, certainly in the UK, and I think in the states too, much higher on wine than they are in food in percentage terms. Does that make sense from an economic standpoint? It's again, pricing is an art, uh, and we really do stand by that. And we've seen it. There's many different pricing models. Some people will use formulas to establish their prices, which we don't really. Look- recommend people to do. Uh, There's also more of progressive pricing. So on the lower end, let's say, you know, with a $5 bottle of wine that we're now selling for uh, $20, you know, it has, it's almost a four time markup on that. As we move higher up the list into a $60 bottle of wine, we might price that for $120. So it's only a two times markup on that. So it usually tends to be sort of a progression as we move up the list. Um, I've also seen wine programs that were wildly successful when they came out and said, we mark up your bottle of every bottle of wine on our wine by the bottle list by $10. Mm -hmm. And so whether you're having a $20 bottle of wine, you know that that bottle cost them $10. Mm -hmm. If you're having a $90 bottle of wine, it cost them $80. And so you're going to get a much higher quality of wine as you really do move up. So you're rewarding the wine drinker and the, or, the, or the, the person who's interested in wine, really. Absolutely. And it yeah. makes the uh, better wines a lot more approachable. You feel a lot more comfortable with that because most wine drinkers know what their bottle of wine costs if they were to go to the store. So when they yeah. go to a restaurant, they can easily pick out and say, oh, these guys are really getting me here on the price. I like that wine. I'll go with it anyway. <laughs> but that... You know, that $10 markup, gosh, I mean, every table in the restaurant would have a bottle of wine on their table because it was such a, almost like a great deal, yeah. but it was the way that they built their program and it was tremendously successful. You said successful. Was the restaurant successful in economic terms? Yes. I, yeah. It was a restaurant in Houston, Texas. I, I'm drawing a blank on the name at the moment, but yes, just a, I love a great idea. restaurant group. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a way to make it uh, approachable to people. And, and that's what we want. We want the, the restaurant offerings to be approachable. And, and what do you think of, of corkage charges? I mean, is that something that restaurants don't like? I mean, it's something that, you know, it happens actually, I mean, rarely, I would say. I mean, there are some places that do it, but some people are quite wary of it. I mean, I always think if you say to somebody, listen, I want to bring a bottle of wine, but I'll pay you, corkage will be this price of your of your cheapest wine or something. Is that fair from a customer point of view, or are we almost expecting too much of the restaurant? I believe that corkage fees are acceptable if the restaurant is has wine to sell. Um, oftentimes it will be, as you mentioned, that cost of the cheapest bottle of wine will be the corkage fee. Someone else might have a set price, you know, somewhere between 20 and $30 per bottle. That's fine. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons why is, well, here in the States, our alcohol 
alcoholic beverage control laws are wildly different from state to state. But in New Jersey, for example, when you have a full liquor license that can serve cocktails, wine, and beer, uh, you have to pay quite a bit of money to obtain that license because there's a restriction on the quantity of licenses that are out there. So you're actually mm-hmm. having to purchase that for can be several hundred thousands of dollars at times. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely necessary to be able to charge a corkage fee because you want to encourage people to buy from your own wine list that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also have in, in New Jersey, we had BYOB, uh, bring your own beverage where people would bring their wines to our restaurant was a BYOB. Mm. Uh, we did not charge a corkage fee. Mm. Other BYOB restaurants would, but we wanted, to, we made a choice to provide value to our guests by not charging, uh, a corkage fee. The reality is, you know, we're not making any money on that wine. We're having to supply the glassware. We're having to clean the glassware, polish the glassware, uh, and also there's breakage that goes along with any time you have, you know, hundreds of glasses and every time, you know, a wine glass would break, the chef would sort of, it was a chef owned restaurant. So he'd shudder a little bit uh, in frustration with that. That's another $5. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. there wasn't that corkage fee to make up for it, but that was yeah. for us, we looked at it as a cost of doing business mm-hmm. and a way of providing value to our, our guests there. Interesting. I mean, I, I often think it's fair if you're a punter, if you bring a bottle of your own wine, and even if you're paying corkage, also to buy something from the list. So you don't just turn up with five bottles of wine and say, hey, I'm only going to spend $100 or something because I've brought all these bottles of wine. I think there needs to be a bit of, of give and take, don't you? Absolutely. I would say that that's surely the best way to approach it. You know, um, it also gives you a chance to engage with the sommelier and not just say, hey, you know, we brought this because yeah. we know best. Yeah. Uh, it makes it a little more fun and conversational. How much do you think the Coravin has changed wineless and the economics of pouring wine in restaurants? Because there's way less wastage now, presumably because of it. Absolutely. It's a great system. It, it allows us to expand our wines by the glass list or, or if we're doing wine flights, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll end up pouring out bottles of wine, you know, somewhere between three to five days, depending on the bottle and how much air is left in the bottle if we don't have a system like that. Uh, but the Coravin system enables restaurateurs and operators to just provide a better experience overall because we can try finer wines and not have that uh, pressure of needing to sell through if we do open a bottle of fine wine um, and we're ending up pouring, you know, a third or half of it out because it goes bad on us or, uh, you know, or having to put it into a sauce. uh, That's, it creates opportunities. Yeah, which is great. Listen, final set of questions, really. I just wonder, does eating out still feel like a job to you? At times it can. It, it, it's a blessing and a curse, you know, and I, I call it the tradesman's curse. It's sort of like if you walk with, into a, a parking structure, a parking garage with an engineer, uh, they look at things a little <laughs> bit differently. They're looking at the structure, the concrete mix, uh, if there's cracks. And that's sort of the same thing for me when I go into a restaurant. But when I'm dining with others, I really make a conscious effort to try to stay in the moment with them, with the people that I'm there with, um, and and keep the comments in my own head. But uh, <laughs> there is a, a whirlwind tornado in my own mind every time I go to eat out. And how do you get away from wine, from 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 restaurants rather? I mean, what what are your other interests outside restaurants? I've uh, my grandfather taught me to. Yeah. My grandfather taught me to play golf at a young age. So I've always been a golfer, a little bit of basketball, a little bit of soccer, you know, uh, enjoy just kind of being outside in the sun. If I'm in California, I always try to make it to the beach. 
so, you know, depending on the locale that I'm in or the place that I'm visiting, uh, you know, when I travel, I do try to hit the tourist spots and then the off the off the grid sort of places to visit. Uh, so depends on the location. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing fascinating insights into the way menus are, are engineered. And I've certainly made me think very differently about restaurants and, and the way I shall order next time I go in. So thank you, Sean, for your expertise and wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I've really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for having me on your show. Well, I don't know about you, but I'll never look at a menu the same way again. I'll be back in the new year with my first guest of 2024, Grant Ashton, from White and Focus Members Club 67 Pall Mall. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.